Amen. So again, uh, we're here at the end of 1 Timothy 6. We've got a few new series uh, coming up here towards the end of the year. And so we're excited about that. We've been talking about and praying about uh, what God has in store for us here over the next uh, several weeks. It's crazy to say towards the end of 2023, but we are there. And so we're uh, only a few months left. It's uh, my favorite time of the year, so I'm excited about specifically cooler weather, but everything else that comes with that as well. So, uh, yeah, so as we look at 1 Timothy chapter 6, we'll be in verses 3 through 10 tonight. And so if you want to flip to that in your Bible, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 3 through 10. Uh, we do say this on Sunday mornings, but if by chance you don't hear it, uh, there are Bibles in the pew back in front of you, and if by chance you don't have a copy of God's Word, that is our gift to you. So take it, write in it, take it home, read it, use it, give it to someone who doesn't have one. That's the whole purpose of those Bibles, just as a reminder. And so we'll be, uh, the scriptures that we'll be going through will be on your handout. You should see those as we go through. So as we think about church, you know, as I, I prayed and thought about and prepared for tonight, I, I thought about this whole picture of, of Paul and what he's, what he's explaining to Timothy and how he's instructing Timothy of what he wants him to do and how he wants him to go. And I thought about, you know, us and as far as how God sees us and, and, and as far as how we see God. You see, when we think about coming to church, I don't know what the catalyst was for what brought you to church, and I'm not sure. Uh, maybe it was someone who invited you. Maybe it was someone who encouraged you. Uh, there's been several times, uh, believe it or not, where I've been come and gotten out of small group or, you know, hunted down in the halls to say, hey, there's someone who walked here off the street and they need some help. It happens more often probably than you would think. And so many people come to church for many different reasons. And so as we think about that, you know, I'll be honest with you as I thought about that. Well, why do people come to church? Well, I choose to believe that most people start coming to church for the right reasons. You know, I, I don't think, you know, we've been reading about uh, false teachers, and we'll read a, a, little, bit of that, a little bit about that tonight. And, and I'll be honest with you, I don't think any of you started coming here with the intent to be malicious. I don't think, you know, few, if any people, come to church with the intent to do harm, right? That you, theologically, you don't know something is wrong, and yet your intent is to breed that into the congregation. I don't think that was your desire. As a matter of fact, here's what happened to me, and probably what happened to you, is there was something that happened in your life that caused you to have interest in, or conviction about, or desire to know more about who God is and what God does, right? That's probably most of our stories. And it's through this desire that we began to shape our actions. And so maybe, maybe you had a, a tragedy in your life and you really needed to explore the why of who God is. God, why did this happen? Why is this happening to me? Maybe, uh, maybe a neighbor invited you and you were curious as to their lifestyle and it was a why do you live the way that you live? What is going on? What do you know that I don't know that causes you to live the way in which you live? And so it begins to shape our desires and, and our desires then be, began to shape our actions. And so then here's what happened is then you began to act according to that. That you want to know more. You're here tonight for what reason? Well, it, it's not to worship through song because we don't have music on Wednesday nights. And so it's for you and I to worship through the Word. And how do we do that? Through God revealing Himself through uh, the preaching of Scripture, right? That's why we, we all came. And so it shaped us. So last month uh, I was on sabbatical. And so I got a month to take a break and um, just kind of refresh and recharge. And so one of, and we talked about this, one of the strangest things to me was not coming here. It was weird for me because it's so routine for me to do that. It's so normal for me to see you on Wednesdays and Sundays and, and to be involved every, you know, in everything that's going on around here. That's normal. Why is that? Because it shapes our actions as we begin to desire the things that God has in store for us. But here's what happens, and here's the danger, and here's what Paul is dealing with, is that those desires over time, this desire to know Jesus, this desire to submit to the things of God, slowly begins to morph 
into other things. Now, again, I know we're starting out hot at the beginning, but I want you to be open, okay? It's true. It is true for every one of us that our desire for the things of Jesus slowly began to morph into other things. Now, I'm not going to give you any examples because I'm not going to glorify sin. But these are very subtle things. These are very subtle changes. And before we know it, our passion for God starts to look a little more like passion for the things of God. It's a stark difference. It's a subtle change, but it's a significant shift spiritually in our lives. That this focus on who Jesus is and what Jesus has done in our life, slowly through routine, unfortunately, and maybe you would say even familiarity, that we began to subtly shift towards passion for the things of God. And the danger is, the danger for every one of us is that Jesus would become routine for us. And that we would begin to pursue the things of God more passionately than we pursue Jesus himself. You see, our passion for the things of God replace our passion for Jesus. And then our passion for the things of God, listen to me tonight, please. Our, our passion for the things of God then begin to look more like passion. And then I become a passionate person who happens to be religious, right? Or whatever you want to phrase there. I'm a passionate person who fell in love with Jesus and I began to be enthralled with the things of God. And then the things of God began to take preeminence over my pursuit of Jesus. And then passion became the marker of my life. And I could be passionate about college football at this point because passion becomes my marker, not Jesus. And a lot of church people, and, you know, I'll be honest, I'm hard on church people because I came from legalism. A lot of church people are really good at loving the things of God, and a lot of church people are really good at loving passionately the things of God. You see, before we know it, what started as passion for Jesus became passion for the things of God, then became passion and then the end of the story is that this passion, what started as passion for God, has now become passion for self. And here's where Paul is. Paul is writing to the church at Ephesus. You see, it's only been a few short years since Paul left Ephesus. You see, Paul planted through some people the church at Ephesus. And so imagine, if you will, let's just think back and use our imagination because Paul uses that word here in, in our text tonight. But use your imagination for a second and imagine that he, you have this uh, encounter with Paul, okay? That you now have met Paul and you've heard all of these things about Paul. And, you know, it's been a few years since Paul was bad and now Paul's good. And he had this radical encounter with Jesus. Now, you don't and I don't and no one alive has the experience of knowing someone who actually laid eyes on Jesus, right? No one has seen that. And yet here's Paul, He's one of the last ones to have seen Jesus alive. And here Paul rallies into town, plants this church, and all of a sudden you get the opportunity to hear someone share their testimony that actually saw Jesus. Think about that. I mean, he, this is someone who knows the eyeball-to-eyeball eyeball test. This is someone who had the experience of face-to-face, -face, everything that we all long for, Right? That he had this experience. And so now they're invited. Man, let me tell you what about this guy named Paul. And listen to what he said about Jesus. Did you know that Jesus is not just for the Jews? That actually the Gentiles can be saved. Did you know that we can be part of the chosen nation? That God does in fact love us? Imagine the passion for who? For Jesus because of what Paul did, right? Think about that. It's only been a short time. 
Now Paul is away, Timothy is now in charge, and what begins to happen? The passion for Jesus begins to dissipate. And the passion for the things of God, and the passion for passion, and then the passion for self begins to replace the passion for Jesus. And throughout the letter, Paul is trying to remind them of what they first came to know to be true. The same thing that you and I first came to know to be true. And this is what he says in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 5. He says, there is one God. There is one mediator between God and man. Uh, men, the man Christ Jesus. And who is he? Well, he is the one who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Paul is saying, This is what passion for Jesus is because of what he has done for us. And so as we start tonight, the first blank on your handout is this. You see, what God wants for us is far greater than what we can imagine for ourselves. What God wants for us is far greater than what we could ever imagine for ourselves. You see, the passion that we once had for Jesus that morphs its way slowly but surely into passion for self, we buy into the lie, deceit, Paul says. We are deceived into believing that what's best for us is what we think is what's best for us and not what Jesus thinks is what is best for us. And this is how he starts in verse 3. He says, if anyone teaches... A different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness. He is puffed up with conceit and he understands nothing. He is puffed up with conceit and he understands nothing. Paul is saying this this false teaching, this different doctrine. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree, or in other words, does not draw near with the sound words of our Lord Jesus and the teaching that accords with godliness, he's puffed up and he doesn't understand anything. Those are strong words. You see, what Paul is saying is that there are things that you believe in your life, Ephesus, that are a lie. Things that are not true in your life. Things that you've come to believe to be true. And, and I thought a lot about this this week. There's a lot of things in our own lives. We, we convince ourselves of many things that aren't true. Mostly personally, but certainly corporately sometimes. But there's things that you believe about yourself that are absolutely not true. But you've convinced yourself that those things are true because you want those things to be true. Right? It can be positive or negative. You could say that nobody likes you, or you could say that everybody likes you, and both of those are probably wrong. Right? I mean, it, it, you, it, when you think about that, there's a lot of those things. And so it, as I began to look at uh, verses 3 through 10 and, and kind of unpack this, there really began to be these two lies that, that really kind of stood out to me. And so tonight I want to share with you a couple of things that we all buy into as a lie And then how Paul says that we can combat that. And so the first thing that I believe Paul is showing us here tonight is the more control that I have, the more important that I become. The more control that I have in my life, the more important that I am or that I become in my life. This is a lie that has been perpetrated from the very beginning of human history. Think about it. The more control that I have, the more important that I have. Did God really say, don't eat from that tree? Right? And what was the pursuit? It was the pursuit of knowledge, which was for what reason? It was for control. And so we believe and have from the very beginning, the more control that we have, the more important I am. And when we are bent, when we're passionate about self, guess what we want to be? important, right? When we're passionate about self, we want to self-validate. We want to be important. And so what's happening at the church at Ephesus is that people are coming in and they're beginning to self-validate. And they're beginning to believe the lie about their own selves. And then they're starting to promote those things that you can be the best version of yourself. You know, we see a lot of this in the world today. You be you. What's best for you, right? Act how you feel. And so they began to do these things. You see, a person who is pursuing control, and he lays it out very eloquently here in Scripture tonight, but someone who is pursuing control, there are some characteristics about that person. Now, this may be you tonight. I hope it's not, but it's possible. 
Okay, and so if it's you, the answer is that you would look at this and say, it's me, I confess, and then do something about it. Okay, and so let's look at it. Let's unpack it tonight. What are some characteristics of somebody who is pursuing control? (laughs) What does that look like? Well, the first thing is, according to Paul here tonight, they are superficially smart. They are superficially smart. Look what he says. He says in verse 3, he says, If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness... So who is going to say, you know, I, I, uh, I hear what you're saying, Jesus, and I understand you're the creator of the world, but actually that's wrong. Who's going to say that? Someone who's believed the lie that they are important and they are more important than what Jesus says. And so what they believe is that they're smarter than Jesus, that they're smarter than Jesus. They're superficially smart. This not agree, it means to not draw near. And then what does he say not to draw near to? Well, he says not to draw near to the sound words. That, that uh, word, words here, the sound words, is the word lagos, which is Jesus. So what they're saying is that they are, this is someone who does not draw near to Jesus. What we see is that the false teachers were minimizing Christ and his teaching about himself as being the center of scriptures. You see, if if Jesus is not at the center, well then, who is? That's very easy. There's only one answer to that. Me. It's either Jesus is the center or I'm the center. There is no in-between. You see, these false teachers, they were conceited, which means delusional. And and according to Paul, they understood nothing. Now, remember, they're superficially smart is what Paul is saying. They've come in and they've said, well, you know, I hear what you're saying about what Paul taught us about Jesus and how Jesus is the center of scriptures. But did Paul really say? Did God really say? He he says in verse 7 that they desire to be teachers without understanding. You see, one of the things that we see in the church, and and this is the strangest thing to me. um, I don't understand it necessarily, but, but here's what we see. We see people who are successful in the corporate world who think that because they're successful in the corporate world, that automatically they have prestige and power and control in the church world. It's common. It's common. Here's the deal. Your success in the world, it has nothing to do with your understanding of the truths of Scripture. It has nothing to do with that. Your success in the world is because that you have been, for whatever reason, either on your own or, or by, you know, granted some, uh, you know, favor from God that you are successful in the world. But success in the world has absolutely nothing to do with understanding the truths of Scripture. And so what we see is we see, uh, you know, church, that, that people who say, well, you know, I'm, I'm pursuing control, I'm smart uh, in the world, and so that means that I am automatically smart in the church. Well, no, that's not what that means. You see, church is not the accumulation of corporate executives. It is the assembly of broken sinners. That's what the church is. And so oftentimes if we come in and we say, well, you know, because I'm successful outside of the church for the things of the world, it doesn't mean that you will be successful or that you should have control of the things inside the church. You see, this was their grab at power. Because if you only follow Jesus when you are in control, you are not following Jesus. You are following your own ego. This was an arrogant conceited display of their lack of understanding and according to Paul, their unhealthy craving. You see, here's what God desires for you. God desires that you be smart, if we want to use that word. Said another way, God desires that you and I would come to a knowledge of truth, okay? And this truth comes through Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, You see, Jesus is the only one by which truth comes through. And so there has to be, in order for us to have this knowledge of truth, guess what has to happen in your life? Whether you're a successful, smart, corporate executive, 
that you move into, you know, God draws you as we began the message into the church. What has to happen in your life? There has to be a confrontation with truth in your life. Because here's the deal. Every one of us were on a path to destruction prior to Jesus. Every one of us. Every one of us had our own ideologies. Every one of us had our own ways of living. Every one of us had our own paths of life. And all of those were wrong. Okay? All of those were wrong. Until we intersected with Jesus. That Jesus intersected our life. And there was a confrontation with truth. And what happened in your life and in my life is that God revealed the truth of who he really is. And that truth intersected my life. And what happened in my life, and if you're saved here tonight, the same thing happened to you, is it radically changed your thought process. And the things that you believe to be true, you reevaluated everything. And you said, here's what Jesus said, and here's what the Word says, and here's what I've learned or been taught. And you say, which one of those things does not collaborate? Because this one always stands, the Word of God. And if this doesn't agree with the Word of God, it's wrong. Right? And so there had to be this confrontation with truth at some point in your life. If that has never happened to you, good news, it still can, you're still breathing. And so what you need to do is you need to compare your life with the words of Scripture. And here's what will happen when you compare your life with the words of Scripture. You will realize, I can't do that. I have failed. I have made mistakes. I've hurt people's feelings. I've injured people. I've lived the wrong ways. I've been living for the wrong things. And then guess what you'll do? If you want to follow Jesus, if you want a relationship with Jesus, what you'll do is you will repent of that, which means that you'll just turn from it and that you will turn to Jesus and you will begin to pursue the truths of Jesus. It's very, very simple that we would come to this confrontation. It's a moment, or if I might suggest to you tonight, It is continual moments where we are confronted with our sin, where we're confronted with our mistakes, where we're confronted with our wrong points of view, and not that we would walk away with our tail tucked because we were wrong, but that we would walk away encouraged that because we were wrong, Jesus is perfect. God sent him so that we could be right through his perfect record. Amen? You see, if you only listen to people who agree with you, then you're always right. To which I would say, impossible. So what happens is, when, when we have this confrontation of truth, I want to I dig in a little bit here, so I want you to stay with me. What happens is, when we have this confrontation of truth, then sometimes, this is not all the time, but sometimes we use church words to dance around that truth. Sometimes we use church words to dance around that truth. Let me give you an example. When I was growing up, the big thing was that you would rededicate your life, that you had some sin in your life, you were confronted with the reality of that truth that, you know, it was wrong and that you needed to confess and to repent and to turn to Jesus. But instead of this confrontation that I'm not following Jesus and I need to follow Jesus and I need to be saved, it was, well, I'll just rededicate. And what happened for me, I don't know about for you, but growing up, there was a lot of people who wore out their dedicator, right? They rededicated till their rededicator broke because we didn't want to confront the reality that we are broken. See, we, we're prideful, right? Remember, what are we talking about? I want to have control because I'm important. And if I confess the reality that I sinned or I made a mistake, well, what does that do? That demotes me on the importance scale, right? And so I'm not going to be honest about the things that happened in my life. The best baptism videos are, man, if God hadn't saved me, I'd be dead right now. The best baptism videos are the ones who say, you know what, without Jesus, man, I was tearing everything up. Without Jesus, I was burning everything down. But God intersected my life, and man, let me tell you, God has radically saved me. Hey, I'm not perfect. I messed up just a few seconds ago, but God radically saved me. That's the story of the Bible. It's not a bunch of perfect people. If that were true, then wouldn't you think they would have rewritten all of their mistakes out of it? That's not what Scripture is. And so we've got to stop dancing around the reality of our own brokenness, but we've got to celebrate the one who saves us from our brokenness. We've got to refocus on 
Jesus. Because if we're all bent out of shape about the things that I did, then who are we focused on? Me. And not on Jesus. You see, the correct answer is to repent. But if I can, follow me here, if I can go a little further, it is not just repentance. Repentance doesn't just bring the knowledge of truth. Repentance removes the barrier to the knowledge of truth. Think about it. If you'd say, you know what, it's wrong and I need to turn from that, and you don't turn to Jesus, when you repent, you are removing the barrier. God is removing the barrier of the sin that's in your life. You're confessing it and you're turning from that sin. But you have to go to Jesus. The barrier has now been removed, but what do you have to do? You have to replace that with Jesus. So instead of saying, I need to repent, or saying, I'm going to repent, how about you say, I'm going to repent, and I'm going to turn to Jesus, that you're going to take it a step farther. And I'm not, I don't don't want to confuse you, and this is not a matter of semantics. I'm just saying that what repentance does is we, we use church words. Well, let's use them like they were intended to, because when someone repented of their sin in Scripture, they ran to Jesus. You see, repentance, it removes the barrier. And what it does is the barrier is now removed. And so what now can you see? You can see truth. Repentance leads to truth. Jesus said in John 17, 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And so here's what we're saying. Knowledge is not based on experience. It's based on truth. It's not based on experience. It's based on truth. You know, so often tell, I've been going to church for 30 years. Well, then, man, you should be a well of information. And there should be all kinds of things that God is doing in your life. It's not based on experience. It's based on truth. How has God radically transformed your life in those 30 years? You see, Paul has just stated that it takes some time for the truth that you read in the last chapter. It takes some time for the truth to display itself through good works. It was the very last few verses of chapter 5. He says, just like it takes some time for truth to reveal bad works or evil things. That's why leaders in the church, as Pastor Tony preached a couple weeks ago, they are qualified by one standard and one standard alone. The Word of God. The truth of God's Word. And so if you spend all of your time learning and enhancing your standing in the world, then you will never grow in the kingdom. You are superficially smart. If you spend all of your time focused on control in the church, guess what else? You will never grow in the kingdom. So as we move past the superficially smart, this is what... Jesus said, Matthew 20, 16, the last will be first, and the first will be last. He says in Matthew 20, it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. It is not about control. It is not about control. Control doesn't make you important. Verse 4, he says, he's puffed up with conceit. He understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, and evil uh, suspicions. He says not only are they superficially smart, number two, they are spiritually sick. These people, Paul says, they're, they're conceited, they're puffed up. They think more of themselves than others do. They have an unhealthy craving or a diseased appetite, which is the opposite of what Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount, right? Matthew 5, 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for what? For righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And so what does it look like if you're spiritually sick? Well, you're never open to being wrong. You're never open to being wrong if you're spiritually sick. You are always, according to Paul, involved in controversy. If there's always controversy around you, then Paul says you're spiritually sick. He says that your words mean more than actions in your world. In other words, you can talk a good game, but your actions don't parallel with that. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, 
Verse 14, we'll read this in D group here in a few weeks. He says, remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words. So Paul's very specific about this. Not to quarrel about words. So these are signals of someone who's spiritually sick that you envy, that you divide, that you slander, and you suspect. So instead of creating unity and harmony, you create division. That suspect, the evil suspicions, he says, is that you, you look for the bad instead of the good. And so superficially smart and uh, we, see, we see spiritually sick. And then this is what Paul says in verse 5. This constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. And so here's the root of the matter. Paul's saying that they're asking the question, what do I get out of it? Which again, how did we start? Passion for Jesus, passion for things of Jesus, passion and passion for self turns to what do I get out of it, which leads to the third thing that Paul talks about, and that is that they have corrupted character. They have corrupted character. He, he indicates here that this error is due to their deficiency in their character, that this peace or the lack thereof creates this friction. <coughs> and, and what it is, is, is this friction... So let me, let me say this. If this is you, if there's friction in your life, if there's controversy in your life, well, I want you to think for a second. This friction is a distraction from the reality of our own brokenness. That's normally why that is. You see, what, what, it, what a great strategy by the enemy. That if we are always distracted, if we're always, I don't think this is going to come up on the board, if we're always distracted by the friction around you, you will never focus on the root of friction within you. If you're always focused on the friction around you, you will never focus on the friction within you. And so that's what Paul's talking about here, this corrupted character, which he says ultimately leads to a depraved mind that you think opposite of the gospel, that you no longer pursue truth. And so they began to use Jesus as their own benefit. And so everyone does this. You know, they come to church and, you know, I say everyone. Uh, at Ephesus, they were coming to church and they weren't getting what they wanted. And so they began to create their own version. We see this sometimes even in our modern world that people will come to church and they won't receive what they want. They're not happy with that. Well, the kingdom, the kingdom has always been a place for the pursuit of hope. The kingdom, the church has never been a place for the pursuit of happiness. If you stick around here long enough, you're going to be disappointed. Right? Because why? Because there's a bunch of people in this church. And what do people do? They make mistakes. And when people make mistakes, they hurt feelings. And so if you're here in pursuit of happiness and you're happy now, then don't come back. Because <laughs> then you can go tell all the amazing things about how happy you were here. Right? But it's the pursuit of hope. That in spite of my brokenness, I can still be a part of the kingdom. And so Paul is saying that they're imagining this, that they're creating this version of Jesus in their life that aligns with what they think, what they want. You see, as long as you come to church to get, you will never be filled. But the moment that you come to church to give, you will never want. You see, if you show up here and you say, hey, what am I getting out of this deal? Well, like I said, you're going to be disappointed. Because the only thing that we have to offer is the thing that's been given to us and the thing that's been available to you, right? It's that your brokenness can be redeemed, that my brokenness can be redeemed. And so how do you know if this is you? Well, it's very, very simple. You say, well, all right, I, I hear you, you know, superficially smart, um, you know, I, spiritually sick, corrupted character. Well, what, how, how do I know that's me? I can talk myself in or out of, of those things. How do I know? Well, good question. It's very, very simple. Paul's talking here, and he says, hey, here's, a, here's an example of these things. How do I know if it's me? Well, here's the question you would ask. Is my life conforming to godliness? That's it. If your doctrine, if the things that you believe do not lead you to action for the things that you believe, then it's you. That's you. Said a fancy way, orthodoxy leads to orthopraxy. Right? That the things that you believe will lead to the things that you do. And so if you believe that you, in fact, are broken, 
that you're, that you're not here for pursuit of control or importance, but that you're here for the pursuit of Jesus, then that belief on the left will turn into action on the right. What you believe is what you and I will do. This is the biblical principle that binds together sound doctrine and godly living. And so this lie that the more control I have, the more important I am is not true. It is not true. The second thing that Paul shows us here is in verse 9, he says, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation. I know what you're thinking. You're disappointed because no one here, unless you drove to Florida and bought the ticket, won the mega million, $1.6 billion lottery. You're upset about that, right? Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation. And if you did win that, by the way, and you're not telling us, if you could just make a large donation to the building fund so we can finish the building over there, it'd be great. <laughs> they fall into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Count me out, right? He says, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving, we see this terminology again, that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. And so he, he talks about this desire for riches. And so what's the second lie? If the desire for control causes me to believe that I'm important, well, what in the world is the second lie? Well, it's very simple. It's this. The more possessions I have, the more important I am. Lie number two, the more possessions that I have, the more important I am. That's what the world teaches us, right? And this is what's happening here as Paul is talking about uh, money and as he's talking about these false teachers here in Ephesus. So he says it's not, it's not true. He's, he's warning here that possessions do not determine your position. He, he goes on to say, look, if you have clothes and food, you're good. That's all you need. And so there's this infatuation with more and better and bigger and, and everything that's happening with possessions that we see in our world today. And, and Paul, even, you know, 2,000 years ago, was saying, hey, hang on a second. Your possessions don't determine your position. He says, we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. You probably heard of John D. Rockefeller, one of the wealthiest people that ever have lived and when he passed away, uh, an aide that was by his side was asked, how much did John D. Rockefeller leave behind? And the man wisely answered, all of it. All of it. You see, when we pursue possessions, when we pursue money as the goal, then what we're doing is we're putting that above Jesus. It's a passion or a self-centered desire. And so we think this accumulation. And so what we certainly know about money, and Scripture teaches a lot this, is that money is a great means, but it's a poor master. Look, we have to have money. And of course, you know, because of my profession, I could talk a long time about this. But the bottom line is this, is that if it's the master, it will consume you. And we know what happens with that? But if it is a means, if you're using it as a, a tool, if you will, then God can honor that and God can use that. And we're going to circle back to that here at the end. You see, money can cause us to desire control. And money can cause us to believe that we are more important or less important because possessions, we think, give us power. So how do we combat these lies in our own lives and guard against them? Because the pursuit of power, the control, the pursuit of money, both of those leave us wanting more. And the reality is this, is that everybody is under someone's control. Every one of us are under the authority of someone else, right? And there is always someone who has more money than you do. Always, always. So what is the answer? Well, I'm glad you asked. If we back up to verse 6, look what Paul says. So this kind of bookends that we looked at. And then here in the middle, Paul gives us the solution. All right? This is what he says. Godliness with contentment is great gain. So here's this pursuit of control at the front and pursuit of possessions at the end. And he says, hey, if you pursue those two things, well, it's not going to end well. But he says in the middle, well, what should I pursue? Well, he says godliness with contentment, that's where you gain. 
Because you become content when you're pursuing God. He says we brought nothing into the world and we can't take anything out of the world. But if we had food and clothing, then with these we will be content. And so I've said this before, but here's what Paul is saying for us tonight. He's saying this, bloom where you're planted. That what you have is what you need. And what you have is what you're going to get. And do with what you have what God wants you to do with what you have. And you'll be content with that. But look, if you start looking around, that's what envy is. If we start looking around and say, man, I really like what Brian's got. And I really want to use that. Or I really like what Darren's got. And I'd really like to have that. We begin to pursue those things. Or that position. And I want to be in that position of power. And I, that, I, want, that, I want that notoriety that comes with that. Well, guess what? That's not where God puts you. God puts you where you're at, in the neighborhood that you're in, in the socioeconomic status that you're in. He gave you everything that you have. He knows your checking account balance, even as important or unimportant as that may be. Here's what happened. He knows that. He knows what you need. He knows what I need. And when we pursue Him, then we have all we need. But if I start pursuing possessions, then guess what? I'm going to come up short. And if I start pursuing control, guess what? I'm going to come up short. It is only the pursuit of Jesus that truly satisfies. I love the verse in Psalm 17, 15. It has been marked in my Bible and marked in my heart for years. This is what it says. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I will be satisfied with your likeness. That is the pursuit of Jesus, that our hearts would yearn to look like Jesus, that our hearts wouldn't yearn to look like Steve Jobs, or our hearts wouldn't yearn to be someone in position of authority of power, that our hearts would yearn to spend time with Jesus. Satisfaction comes from godliness. And Paul, six different times in the letter of 1 Timothy, uses the word godliness to drive home the fact that that is the focus of our pursuit. You see, contentment is always linked with godliness. And for Paul, contentment had nothing to do with being self-sustained, that not that you would look at your checking account balance and say, regardless of what happens, I'm going to be okay. That is not contentment. It is not saying that I have the power to control or to change the situation, and so I'm content. That is not the definition of contentment. Contentment is saying that I don't have the control, that I don't have the ability, and maybe I don't have the means, but God has the ability. He has the control. He has the means. It is being Christ-sufficient. I couldn't find the author of this quote, but I thought it was certainly useful for us tonight. It's been said that everything that we need and everything that we lack is found in Jesus. So if you have a need, go to Jesus. If you have something that you lack, go to Jesus. That is where it is found when we are Christ-sufficient. You see, when we truly grasp and experience this truth, it is a game-changer. Too many people have this idea. You know, we talk about it tonight. We talk about church words. And we, we've got this ideology of, that sounds great, man. I need to be content. But how do we apply that? You see, the reality of contentment and the reality in this room tonight is there is friction. That there is not contentment in some of your hearts. Because in a group this size, that's just the stats. And the devil is constantly pulling us into dissatisfaction. And so how do we stay focused on that? You see, all Christians would say that we're saved by Jesus and Jesus Christ alone. But oftentimes we find ourselves seeking happiness and identity and purpose apart from Jesus. And so what does it look like to be content? You see, contentment comes when satisfaction is not based on the gifts, but on the giver. That we would be Jesus-focused. It has nothing to do with our circumstances, but it has everything to do with our attitude. Another saying I came across, it says, Contentment is a constant feast. He's richest who requires the least. And so if you're having a hard time being content tonight, I want to give you just a couple of things. The first thing, and this is a joke, is to make a list of everything that you have that you don't deserve. 
and then make a list of everything that you do deserve that you don't have? That's a good question, isn't it? Make a list of everything that I have that I don't deserve. Well, that's going to be a short list, isn't it? Because you like what you got, don't you? And then you say, well, what about this list of everything that I deserve that I don't have? Well, that, that list might be long. You see, the length of that list is going to tell you the, the measure of your heart, right? And so here, here's what we can do. Here's what happens when we make the choice to be content. And then I'm going to give you how to do that. But here are three things. What, what happens when we make the choice to be content? Well, number one is we receive current enjoyment instead of constant striving. Don't you want joy? Wouldn't it, wouldn't it be wouldn't it be good? I don't know if this is you. Maybe you're here tonight and you're, you're struggling with striving. Wouldn't it be okay if someone stepped into your life right now and they said, everything's going to be okay? Whatever you're striving with, whatever you're wrestling with, whatever you're worried about, how would it change if someone stepped in and said, everything's going to be okay? You see, we all need that calm in our life. Because sometimes things can really speed up. And when we're pursuing this, you see, when we make the choice to be content, we can, be enjoy, we can enjoy today. Because listen, here's the deal. Tomorrow's coming. And a lot of times we are robbed of the present because of the worries of the future. We're robbed of the present. And we miss some things. We miss the joy of right now. Because of what we see uh, coming or what we're striving for in the future. And so we can receive joy today instead of constantly striving if we choose to be content. Number two, we can receive complete freedom to recognize and to celebrate somebody else's achievement and not be envious of that. You see, when you're okay with you, other people can have good in their life and you can be okay with it. But when I'm not content and something good happens to you, what does my heart say? Why not me? Remember our list of things that I deserve and I don't have? I'm going to add that to the list. Right? Because I'm going to say, well, why should you get that? I'm smarter or I worked harder or I've been here longer or whatever. Right? And we're going to justify that feeling in our heart instead of saying, man, that is fantastic that God chose to bless you with that. And I want to celebrate that in your life. You see, that's what happened in Acts chapter 2. You read Acts chapter 2 and you see the first church and you see Pentecost. And the Bible says that they were selling things to help each other out. How do they do that? Because they knew the mission. And they were singularly focused on the purpose of the mission, which was what? To magnify the name of Jesus in any time, any time we take our eyes off of that purpose, what's going to happen? Dissension and envy. And I'm going to start looking around and say, you got something I want. And you're going to get mad because I have control that you don't or whatever. Right? That's what's going to happen. And we're not going to be able to celebrate the things that God is doing in someone else's life. I mean, think about the disciples, okay? John is writing this amazing letter and, you know, hey, hey, uh, by the way, I'm the disciple who Jesus loved. Don't you love how John always put that in, in the Gospel of John? That's me, by the way. I'm the one. And, and even when they're running to the uh, tomb and, and they're racing and, and he even tells which one got there first, you know, John was kind of like this competitive guy apparently. But yet what happens at Pentecost? Peter the loser, Peter the denier, Peter the go back to fishing because I don't know what just happened. Peter then has this encounter in John 21 with Jesus, okay? And Jesus restores Peter. And guess who preaches at Pentecost? Peter, the denier. Peter, the loser. Peter, the passionate about Peter guy, right? Now, if I'm John, I'm a little burned about that, right? I'm a little upset. Uh, how did you choose him, Jesus? There were 10 other guys that were better choices, but yeah, that's who Jesus chose. And, and we don't read anywhere that, and John was very upset, but he let Jesus do it or whatever. We don't read any of that. Here's what we read. Peter stood up and said, look, I don't have any money, but I can tell you about Jesus. And he told them all about Jesus. And the Bible says 3,000 people were saved. And the church grew and was celebrated because of that. That's when what we're doing is celebrating the achievement of other people. The disciples were looking at Peter and saying, man, that dude's changed. Something happened on the beach with that fish. That guy's different. He was celebrating in his life. 
You see, and, and when we choose to be content, number three, we can cultivate a grateful spirit. We can cultivate a grateful spirit. Look, if you spend enough time around Pastor Brian, you'll realize that he has the Midas touch. We love to mess with Pastor Brian about this, but, it, you know, if you would like a little favor from God, spend a little time with Brian and Suzanne. I mean, I'm just telling you. It just, it emanates around them. It's like if you just get in their circle, it just happens. So, you, you know, I can look at Brian's life and I can say, man, I want some of what you got, right? Right? Or I can say, see, everybody knows this, amen, and see. But look, or I can say, look, man, great things happen in Brian's life and Suzanne's life. Great things happen in my life. Right? I can be grateful for what's happening in my life. I can't say, well, why don't those things happen to me? Now, I'm going to be honest with you. I've said that sometimes. Not about Brian. I'm just kidding. Uh, right? We say that. We look at other people. We say, well, well, why is that not me? Well, God, you, you misdirected that blessing. That was meant for me. But when we're content, what are we doing? We're okay with what we have. Hey, here, here's the truth. If today is as good as it gets, it's been pretty good. Right? I mean, think about it. If we lived 200 years ago, man, they didn't have AC back then. Right? I mean, think about it. It's pretty good right now. Now, you know, you can look around and get bent out of shape about politics, and don't talk to me if you do, but you can get bent out of shape about a lot of things. But we, you know, we had several teams who left the country uh, this past summer on mission. United States is a pretty good place to be, right? You go home and you, you got somewhere to live and you got someone to talk to and you got pe- just look around. You got people here that'll smile at you and speak to you and love on you and walk with you and eat with you and serve with you. And the list goes on and on. I mean, there's things to be grateful for, right? No one's standing at the door checking cards and persecuting you for carrying your Bible and no one's checking your bag to see if you got a copy of the Scripture. That doesn't happen here. The list goes on and on. If we're content, it starts with gratitude. That we say, God, look, man, I know I've been whining about a lot of things I wanted, but I'm going to be honest with you. When I look around, I feel pretty good about what's happening right now. Now, hey, look, you can get bent out of shape about what you don't have. And there's a lot of things that could be really useful if we had them, but we don't. So is God sovereign or not? Right? And he is. I choose to believe that. And so that means that everything that's right here and right now, we got, we need it, we're using it. And when God says to give more or do something different, we'll do that. And so we've got to apply that. And look, here's the deal. Some of us are going to be able to do that easier than others. And so what's going to have to happen is you're going to have to give a little elbow to the side and say, hey, bro, you need to be more grateful. Hey, look, that doesn't sound very grateful to me. Let me help you with that. Right? We're going to need to be spurred on and encouraged to do that. So how do we do it? How can we be grateful? How can we do it? Just a couple things to close here. Number one, how can we do it? Well, look around. Just look around. All you have to do is look around. Because here's what happens. Context creates contentment. Context creates contentment. That you can look around in your life, and I know that there are bad things happening in some of our lives. I know that. I'm not discounting that. I'm not rose-colored glasses here. I'm just saying, look around. We, you know, the reputation of what God is doing at our church is incredible. It's, it's amazing to see God do the things that He does. Uh, you look at our mission teams, you heard from uh, Guatemala this past Sunday, uh, DR, Brazil, uh, all the different things that God is doing and how God is working. And that's not just in the last three months. I mean, year after year after year, story after story after story. And towards the end of the year, there's going to be some things that, you know, we're going to share. We, you know, it, it takes us decades to share all the stories, but we've got some stories we're going to share of, of the things that God is doing. Just look around. Listen, if you want God to work in your life, He is right there and He's waiting on go to do something radical in your life. So all you have to do is look around. The second thing is look back. Look back and say, okay, 
I really want to be grateful here, and I really want to be content. And it's pretty hard right here. But if you look back, I guarantee you, here's what you're going to find. You know what you're going to find? Huh. God brought me through that. Man, look, look what God did work in that situation. God did bring that person into my life. God did solve that problem. God did fix that situation. God did bring peace to the friction. When you look back, you're going to realize, wow, I've, man, I've come a long way. Look how far God has brought me. It's true for every one of us that we can look back and say, he did that. How in the world? I remember being in the middle of that and, and how difficult it was, but I don't even think about that anymore, and I forgot that God did that. Look, God's done so many things in your life, you've forgotten a lot of them. Look back, turn around and say, wow, we came that far. Look how far God has brought me. Look how much God has changed me. Look how much God has provided for me. Look at all the people who love me, right? Look back at the things that God has done. So we look around and we get context. We look back. And see, when we look back, we remind ourselves of all the things that God has done and all the things that he's brought us through. And then we look ahead. 1 Corinthians 2, 9, Paul, same author here, he says, But it's written, What no eye has seen, nor ear has heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. So here's the truth tonight. Every one of us in this room are still breathing. Every one of us have a future. God has something in store for every one of us. And we look around and see all the things that God is doing. And we look back and see all the things that God has done. We can look forward. We can look ahead and say, God has good things in store for me. That God's in control of the future. That God has a plan for my life. That God is actively working for my good. That God is conforming me to the image of his son. Because when I pursue him, that's what he does. That God's got something in store for me. Because here's the deal. When I begin, when I begin to get distracted of, of all the things I don't have, it's hard for me to see the things that God has in store for me. And I can't dream. And I can't envision the things that what God wants me to do. Because I'm stuck. And when I'm stuck, I can't envision me moving forward. So look ahead. Look ahead to the things that you might imagine that God would do. Because listen, no matter what you could envision, and no matter, according to Paul, nor the heart of man has imagined, you can't imagine what's ahead. It's far better than what you could ever imagine. But it's out there, and I want to go towards it. And I want to see what God has. And if I look back over the last 5, 10, 15 years of my life, I can say, wow, look what God did. How in the world did that work out? And yet here we are. And so that gives us courage and excitement and encouragement for the future to say, well, there's way more ahead than what's behind. Because when we do that, what, what are we doing? We're looking around and what, we're, we're finding context. We're looking back and we're seeing the activity of God. We're looking forward and we're anticipating the good things that God has for us. And in the midst of all that, what are we doing? We're looking at Jesus. We're looking at Jesus. The creator and the sustainer of the earth. The author and finisher of our faith. The one who died to redeem you and to redeem me. The one who granted us the gift of the Holy Spirit that we would not walk alone. The one who said in John 15 that I go to prepare a place for you that where I am going you may be also. The one who declared that he is the way, the truth, and the life and that no man comes to the Father but through him. The one who hung on the cross for six hours on a Friday and when he finished he declared it is finished. When he rose from the grave, the one who said, all power, all authority has been given to me. Not some, not most, but all of it. Listen, whatever the enemy may be doing in your life, he has no power. All power has been given to King Jesus. Live in that reality. 
You can be content. You can be grateful in contentment because of what Jesus has done. But if we're running around all puffed up and conceited and superficially smart with corrupted character and spiritually sick, guess what? We're never going to be content. We're never going to be grateful. And we're never going to see what God is doing in, behind, in front of us because we're focused on ourselves. So if you want to be content tonight, Look around, look back, look forward, and look to Jesus, and you'll find contentment. And you know how you'll know that you found it? You'll celebrate the good things that God is doing in other people's lives, and it will edify the kingdom. Amen? That's what God's plan is for you and for me. And so as we read this in Timothy, Paul is saying, look, go back to remember how this started. Remember how you got saved. Remember the joy. Remember how nothing else mattered but Jesus when you first were confronted with the reality of Jesus and he saved you. Remember that. And you know what that will do? It will propel you to be who God wants you to be. Amen. Let's pray tonight. God, thank you. Thank you for the reminder of who you are. God, thank you that there is no mountain too high.